0: Welcome to Astral Illusions. We are kicking off our coverage of The Mandalorian Season 2, also known as The Baby Yoda Show. Long-time listeners will remember back when we first started, we had weekly Game of Thrones recaps with uh, four-person panels, long discussions, a lot of fun, uh, some of the most fun I've ever had on the show. For The Mandalorian, we decided that it was probably not... The greatest idea in the world to try and recreate that for many reasons. Namely, it's very difficult to get four people around the same place at the same time. The fact that Mandalorian airs on Fridays also complicates that, as opposed to something that airs on Sundays. And also, The Mandalorian is a very fun show to watch. It's a fun show to talk about, full of references, and a lot of stuff happened in the episode. But unlike Game of Thrones, it's not really... Built for the long-term style strategizing that goes on in the ASOF GOT fandom. So I imagine a lot of these episodes will be on the shorter side. We're going to try and keep it to around 20-30 minutes. In addition to the podcast, I have my uh, written reviews of each episode, which I've been doing since the beginning. A lot of fun. I have a lot of fun writing them. That is to say, I hope you have a lot of fun reading them. Don't want to get too ahead of myself. These episodes will be just kind of an elaboration on uh, what goes in the written article and then also just stuff that you wouldn't necessarily put in a written review because, you know, you don't want to do too much nitpicking in a written review, but podcasting's a whole different territory. So without further ado, let's dive into the material. And I guess the big question on, at least my mind, I'm sure on a lot of people's minds is, is how quickly or how deep is this season going to dive into what was kind of left at the end of last season as, uh, you know, the the, the mission that, that Mando is going to go on this season to uh, fu- re reunite Baby Yoda with the rest of his species, the name of which we still don't know and haven't known, and to some extent, I, I, I'm not sure I want to know Yoda's species. That's been kind of one of the great mysteries of Star Wars, but... Mandalorian needs to go and uh, find Baby Yoda's family, but as we found with most of last season, you know, there's there's the this is not really a strictly serialized show. It has a big arc that we can follow along, and obviously that's very important. But most of these episodes are kind of about their own self-contained adventures and. This episode was was is certainly something that we can uh, put into that category. We don't we spend very little time on the broader narrative. Uh, Baby Yoda at, really took a backseat in this uh, episode more so than he has in practically any other. And this, if you remember, this episode tracks really well with the fourth episode of the first season, where the the first appearance of Cara Dune, where they're battling the uh, ATSD Walker. Now, though, we have a crate Dragon, which harkens back to the first movie, and the bones the C-3PO is passing, and presumably the running fan theory is that when Obi-Wan Kenobi chased off uh, the Sand People at A New Hope in his introduction when he was walking, and you hear that noise that's supposed to be a crate Dragon yell, and kind of the way they framed the uh, Sand People in this episode, it, it would really attract with uh, them continuing that. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves yet because at the start of the episode, we're not actually on Tatooine. We're on another planet that we don't know the name of. But Mandalorian is on a mission to try and find his own people. Their little uh, clubhouse on Navarro was pretty toast at the uh, end of last season. And I mean... (sighs) It's kind of an open question about how much shelf life the I'm going to go look for other Mandalorians kind of plotline has uh, to to carry a whole season. But for now, it, I, I don't want to I don't want to judge that too much, especially there's a certain character at the end. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves yet because we're not even on Tatooine. We're on this other planet and Mandalorian walks into a boxing ring where you have some Gomorrian fighters who the sort of pig pig security guards you see at Jabba's Palace, they're boxing. And then there's a firefight, and Mandalorian has a friend who's kind of one of those categories of, uh, you know, he's an acquaintance, but he's not the best friend in the world. His name is Gor Koresh, the one-eyed uh, gangster who... Doesn't know much, but knows that there is somebody who wears Mandalorian armor on Tatooine. The most famous pile of rocks in the Star Wars universe. And I I say that because so far in Mandalorian and also in The Force Awakens, we have two other planets that are basically just both piles of rocks. Navarro and Jakku. I mean, for me, it's, I guess, a little bit of a point of annoyance to have... There's a joke in the Star Trek community that I've talked about uh, in other recaps for last season about how, you know, this, the, their motto is to boldly go where no man has gone before. But in, in actuality, most of the time, they were really just exploring the same lo- uh, same pile of rocks on the Paramount lot that uh, pretty much every episode. So, you know, we have... Uh, Infinite possibilities for endless monotony, that kind of stuff. And Tatooine is the most iconic planet in Star Wars lore, obviously. It's been in uh, most of the movies, aside from Empire Strikes Back and well, Force Awakens and I, uh, Last Jedi, Rogue One also. It's appeared quite a lot. And yeah, we like Tatooine. Nothing wrong with Tatooine. Fun place. Moss Eisley is a great place to go back to. But, you know, for some of us who really want Mandalorian to uh, take a step forward in the story, if we're trying to see something new, something fresh, maybe it's not the best idea in the world to just go back to the place that is most well-known to everybody. It's, uh... You know, it's, it's a decision that time will tell kind of how heavily they lean on the nostalgia. Which, look, if, if you're a fan who, who saw Rise of Skywalker and said, I, you know, this, is, this thing is the worst, you may be very bullish on nostalgia. I get very tired of nostalgia. I think we, we're living in a very nostalgic, heavy world. And that's not to say that you can't tell new stories on a place like Tatooine that everybody knows. Obviously, there's plenty of stories left to be told. However, if you're going to be telling basically a story that we were told last week, uh, last year, and you're just going to do that on Tatooine, a planet we spent a lot of time on last season, right after spending a lot of time on another pile of rocks in Navarro, it is, it is fair to wonder... And yet, at the same time, how much does any of that matter when you have Timothy Alfont, really one of the most exciting television actors uh, uh, of the 21st century? Uh, in in this role, he was definitely uh, channeling Deadwood and Justified, where he played Marshalls in both of those U.S. Marshall and Justified, though, which is a bit more contemporary. This really could have been space Deadwood with Alphant playing the role of Cobb Vanth, who made his debut in a post-Disney acquisition novel, which means it should be canon, RIP Expanded Universe. And I imagine that people who tune into a Mandalorian podcast are probably big fans of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which isn't around anymore, but exists as... uh, they're re-released still under the Star Wars Legends imprint. A lot of those are very fun. A lot of the Heir to the Empire. There's been a lot of talk of uh, of the Darksaber weapon that Moff Gideon had at the end of last year. I actually thought that was going to tie into the... Uh, there's a novel uh, that came out in the 90s called Darksaber with- written by... Kevin J. Anderson, who is known to a lot of people for his work uh, on the Dune series after Frank Herbert's death, uh, co-writing it with his son. Uh, well, Dune is certainly a, a title that should be on everybody's mind after watching this episode because uh, there were so many different Dune references to the fact that the crate Dragons are really, <laughs> they look way more like sandworms than they probably should, and if they'd actually, if if they tried to do them in the original movie, that probably would have heightened Dune. arrakis comparisons uh, with Tatooine have been in existence uh, since the 70s, so that would have been interesting. They also, at one point, talk about uh, the sand people are angry about uh, water short shortages, stolen water which is uh, a big pillar of the Dune franchise. Back to Timothy Alphont, though, because he's wearing the Boba Fett armor, and I think that if you're a Timothy Alphont fan from Deadwood or Justified, or I remember him in Damages for at least two seasons maybe he cameoed in a third he's also i mean he's been in a ton of stuff he was the villain in Die Hard 4 he was just on the good place uh he was in santa clarita diet very versatile actor hilarious uh very capable of dramatic roles also pretty good looking a detail that we should uh totally not skip over he's a very attractive man and he delivered such a performance that it does kind of make you wonder, gee, what if we had this guy in the starring role all along? And what if he could take off his helmet? Because we all love... I mean, Mandalorian's a a, a great lead. He's a fun guy. Pedro Pascal does a really great job as as a Mandalorian. Rarely. I, I assume he almost never actually shows up to wear the suit, if ever. If he's not, you know, we saw him without his helmet once last year. I would, I've heard kind of conflicting reports about that, but it just doesn't stand to reason that very, very, very rarely do actors who are doing essentially just voice parts for a character, very rarely are they going to be on set if their face isn't going to be shown in the scene. And removing the whole face from the equation thing for a show where the two leads are a guy that guy and then also a little baby cutest thing in the world puppet uh that's a lot of extra heavy lifting for a narrative i'm not saying it's a bad thing but it is uh extra challenging and it's kind of why people like warner herzog or carl weathers or yeah gina Carano is a bit hard to talk about these days as a as a transgender podcast uh I don't really know if we have to address that this episode, but we're we're going The show it's great. People have bad opinions. Uh, she kind of apologized, not necessarily too great, but um, people like that need to. Uh, you know, the 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 episodes of last year that that really stuck out were the ones that that had great supporting roles. So as good as Mandalorian is, there this is the kind of drama that really excels when there's other people to carry the load. And you see Timothy Alphant, who's doing such a great job, and it's, if you wonder, gee, I wish that he was actually the lead of this show, uh, I, I don't think he would be alone. And that's not to say that I you know, want Pedro Pascal to go, or that I, I, that I think Mando is a bad character, but Timothy Alphant was phenomenal. He was so good that basically any other critique that I have of this episode is not really all that relevant because it just, it didn't matter in terms of entertainment. This episode provided so much, so much of it. It was a lot of fun. We didn't, you know, when, in the beginning when maybe Yoda was walking past the, the graffiti and kind of looking like he wasn't, wasn't that big fan of street art. That was kind of cute and around the campfire with the Tuscan Raiders was pretty cute. But uh to have uh to have Timothy Alphant and also WL Brown who played a bartender in Deadwood and here he was as the weequay bartender in the city of Moss Pelgo which is supposed to be a mining collective. Oh, another dune reference there. You got the you got the mining collective who's polluted the water of the indigenous species and is being haunted by essentially a sand dragon who kind of looks like a sandworm. The spice melange, where's Mo- the Maudib? I don't know. Anyway, it. What's really funny is also I don't know how many people watching The Mandalorian have seen Deadwood. It's lived on as a as a great show. That, that has uh, stood the critical test of time. but I mean for for a show like uh, the Mandalorian, which is seen by millions and millions, tens of you know what streaming services don't even they don't provide the data so I can't even speculate how many people watch this show because they don't tell you. A lot of people watch Mandalorian though that is safe to say. And how many of those people watch Deadwood? Probably not as many. And uh, it's it's kind of one of those things you'd learn afterward that uh, the Deadwood bartender was playing the Mandalorian bartender alongside the Deadwood sheriff who was playing the Mandalorian sheriff. That's pretty fun. And what would have been fun is if they could have used some Deadwood colorful language, but Disney, so of course they're not going to do that. I mean... Every single scene they had together was great. And I loved also that, you know, there there's a bit of tension between Mandalorian and Cobb wearing the Boba Fett armor. What's interesting is that Boba Fett and Jango Fett aren't actually Mandalorians themselves either. So we'll see how that uh, comes along. But But the broader point with that is that Cobb is not supposed to be wearing Mandalorian armor. That's very offensive that he would be wearing armor for their group of uh religious people the mandalorians can't take off your helmet so his him him having that is a huge insult to mando and yet there wasn't a lot of the traditional you know male bravado between the two of them it wasn't i don't really want to say toxic masculinity we're talking about a western there is supposed to be kind of that puff puff this town's not big enough for the two of us And yet, they really didn't go that route. They were gonna go to violence, and then they said, actually, you've got a baby. Let's not shoot each other. Let's make a deal. Mando, you help me kill the dragon. I'll give you your suit back. And Mando, who could have just been said, you know, no, you can't wear that armor anyway. I'll just shoot you and take it. He decides, no, I'll be the nice guy. Reasonableness is not necessarily something that we're used to seeing in Westerns, and yet... You know, you're sitting there watching, you know, an iconic Star Wars character and I- iconic TV actor just kind of, you know, in- enjoying their own sense of uh, fraternal bond. I mean, it was certainly very enjoyable, at least on my end. And I've skipped a little bit. This this recap is not totally going uh, linearly, but now would be a good time to talk about the... Uh, I, really, kind of the point that I didn't like as much, hence uh, skipping over, and that is the return of Amy Sedaris. Now, Amy Sedaris played Pelly, Pelly Moto, who basically looked like somebody cosplaying as uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley and Alien. Happy Halloween, everyone. But she was really great last uh, last year in that role. Babysitting Baby Yoda, great dramatic scene at the end. Uh, Amy Sedaris is a great, gifted uh, physical comedian. She's great at delivering those lines. Here, it felt very, very sort of out of place, odd. The whole sequence was rushed. We're dealing with an episode that at uh, a little over 50 minutes is uh, on the longer side for this show that that occasionally uh, barely passed half an hour. So it's odd that she would come back and, you know, not really a blink-and-you-miss-it you kind of cameo, but it was very quick, very rushed. She was basically sort of, sort of the vessel for the audience to gush out in-universe in show of, oh, my God, how cute is this baby who is very cute? But it's just... I don't know. It was it was just too rushed, and and you know what? They have other things to do. Maybe she'll come back. Maybe she won't. But it, it, it just it was it's hard to say. It feels out of place because they were going back to Tatooine, but it felt so much like the show was just bringing her back to bring her back, and there wasn't a great purpose and. An episode that had pretty good writing elsewhere. That was that was definitely the, the worst written scene of them all, uh, in this episode. So I say that uh begrudgingly. Uh I like Amy Sedaris a lot. I'd I'd love to see her again, but that requires us to go back to Tatooine again, so great assault there, but back to uh back to uh, it's not Moss Eisley. I keep having to look up what the the other moss is because I was about to just call it Moss Extra, which uh, maybe maybe that's the uh, maybe that's Moss Moss Pelgo, Moss Pelgo. I'm never gonna remember that. Moss Eisley rolls off the tongue. Moss Pelgo is uh, also in the universe. Uh, Amy Sedaris' character didn't really seem to know that uh, that place even existed, but it was nice to go to a uh, different different part of of uh, Tatooine. And what I liked about the village, you see, they dealt. They really dove into post-imperial politics. Now, the Empire has traditionally had sort of a shaky grasp on the outer rim. And uh, a place like Tatooine has traditionally, within the Star Wars universe, been controlled by the Huts. And yet, of course, in A New Hope, the empire was there a lot and there was basically an occupation of Moss Eisley fall of the empire they seem to not like it and I, I I took a lot of that to be sort of more political commentary on uh U.S. Uh, foreign inven- uh, intervention particularly in the middle east when you topple a uh bad figurehead as a dictator uh within foreign policy there's there's A mindset that if you if you get rid of the dictator and uh leave a power vacuum it's often filled by things that are worse uh you know uh u.s u.s troops moving out of iraq uh led to the formation of isis not good obviously uh most of you listening are probably not here for politics but i doubt we have many trump supporters because this is a show hosted by a transgender woman so was interesting I, i've been reading a lot of the the marvel star wars comics particularly the darth vader series so it's been interesting to see especially within the movies you you see a lot of cases where there's just seemingly endless amounts of star destroyers i mean one of the dumber things about rise of skywalker was having more star destroyers than i mean it, it would it would seriously take a a galaxy to to staff the Star destroyers. i don't think like the really the I mean, yeah, the entire population of the Earth could probably fill all of those, but I mean, th- those are the, the metrics we're talking about, the the sheer number of troops that it would have taken. Uh, as, as many Star Destroyers as there were in the original trilogy, uh, the Empire can't be everywhere. So Tatooine would be a place where lawlessness would tend to thrive, and they're kind of saying... You know, the the Rebel Alliance was... Uh, it wasn't obviously just, like, a handful of people, although it was at the end of uh, Last Jedi, but, you know, rebel rebel groups are always supposed to essentially be a fraction of a population. You're going to have a lot of people in a lot of different places in the galaxy who maybe didn't like the Empire, but also didn't care, and maybe their lives were un- un- upended when uh, this uh, government that had been ruling for... A couple decades at that point between the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith and uh, the end of Return of the Jedi. So you're going to find people who are really not on board with that. And they were able to talk about it in a way that it, this episode didn't get you know, too heavy-handed into politics. We also saw the uh, humanization of the Sam people, which which did happen a bit last year. And then, of course, then there's the episode where the Mandalorian was shooting all the Jawas on on Navarro, and that was never really uncharacteristic for a protagonist. We did see some Jawas where uh, Timothy Alfont. I mean, I don't. I'm not calling him Cobb. I think that's a stupid name. We saw Timothy Alfont. Alph- we saw Raylan Givens uh, on the Sandcrawler. That's where he got his armor. Maybe he was the same Sandcrawler as Tatooine. I can't believe we've made it 20 minutes into this episode and I have not brought up R5. I love R5 D4. I have a diecast R5 D4. Seeing R5 and he had made an appearance uh, last last season, but to see him again with his bad motivator, a little rust there, oil spills, circuit spark, I don't I don't know what it was, but it was it was cute. And it was certainly fun to see him again. Those kind of little Easter eggs. Uh, you know, when, when Timothy Alphonse sat down with, uh, with Mando for some blue milk, which is, uh, really not the greatest drink in the world at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It's not the worst drink they have. They have this one, which is kind of like spicy and it's, uh, and it's yellow and red and yuck. Anyway. Yeah. Blue milk. Not so good. I like actually the green milk better. I don't who the hell knows what this stuff is. And that's not even supposed to be on Tatooine. That's on Batuu, Which, uh, maybe we'll see Batu. However, the hell you say it. But you Uh, maybe we'll see that later this season. Now, oh, something tells me. I don't know. Are they saving that for a movie? Is the flagship show on their flagship streaming service big enough? I mean, Disney, Disneyland is a place that has a ride based off Chippendale's Rescue Rangers in the form of Gadgets Go Coaster. I don't want to get too off topic, but. It's not unprecedented. And Batuu made its uh, debut uh, in Star Wars: The adventure continues as one of the landing destinations at the end. And uh, we'll get back on topic. It was fun to see the Tusken Raiders, uh, who probably reached their lowest point in the series in Attack of the Clones when Anakin just massacred the whole village. Uh, they did see some redemption, but... Um, to see them as as a, a people of different culture, not necessarily as the savages that they were portrayed as, which which is often a, a racist trope that's deployed by film, to see them given more of a three-dimensional approach is uh, certainly interesting, and it seemed that they were making some uh, peace with the mining village coming together to slay the dragon, all Tusken Raiders wanted were some stakes, and that, uh, that lovely pearl that they had. So that was all fun, and uh, the action sequences were cool. Parts of it honestly looked a lot like Horizon Zero Dawn. There's a... I'm, you have your bowcaster that that fires like Trip sort of uh, spikes. You fire like a rope that you then put into the ground. It's supposed to stunt the thing in place. Uh, that's basically what they were doing with the dragon, which was uh, cool. And Mando got to... Shine, and he got to be noble, and he got all slimy, and Baby Yoda was having fun with the steak. All of that was... It was fun stuff. I mean, I i, I really liked it. It. I'll say this is not really the kind of stuff that leads well to, like, podcast uh, analysis, so I don't want to, you know, go on ranking uh, each bit of the choreography. Although, while we're on chore- choreography, seeing Mando on the speeder bike while... Uh, Raylan seemed to have his pod racing, uh, rig was, uh, his speeder that was half podcast, uh, half pod racing, not podcasting engine. What if they had Star Wars episode one podcaster on, uh, on Nintendo 64? They're actually remaking that game for Switch. Maybe we should do an episode on that. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, this is such a beautiful show and it's. You know, they're great at sort of uh, not only showing the detail, but I was even like sort of viscerally thinking about when, uh, when Timothy Alphant when he wouldn't drink the Tuscan Raider, the stinky tea. I think, was thinking to myself, boy, that I, maybe that's something that will come to a Disney park. The Tuscan Raider tea that looks... That might have been just been a water... I mean, that thing, it did look disgusting, but apparently he was being rude not drinking it. Which actually is kind of a thing, and certain cultures saw a lot of uh saw a lot of banthos they're walking in single file and an abandoned sarlacc pit is certainly interesting because uh we 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 don't really know i mean there's if you look in like uh the visual guides or that kind of stuff they'll show pictures of sarlaccs but I mean sort of sort of the beauty of the Starlight pit at least in the the original cut of Return of the Jedi so before they added the beak in the 1997 cut the special editions uh you know there's supposed to be kind of these massive things in the ground that are more ter- there's they're more terrifying the less you know about them so the idea of like this empty abandoned pit where you have this dragon it was fun and it was uh it was interesting to see so much lore dating back from the original movie here and used in a meaningful way that didn't feel like the show was leaning on nostalgia but rather rewarding longtime fans like me who can point at the red droid and say I know him that's R5D4 and Ter- when Tara and I were watching I was like that's the guy that I have the diecast of that I got at Disneyland in the Star Tours gift shop in Tomorrowland, not at Galaxy's Edge. But you can't go to Disneyland anyway, so that information is worthless to everybody listening. I'm so sorry, people. It's it's a very, very fun episode. And I guess uh, as as we start to wrap up, talk about the uh, greatest reveal of them all, which was, at the end, we have the return of a certain somebody. We have Tamura Morrison coming back to play. I mean, it's pretty safe to say that it was Boba Fett. It would be idiotic if it wasn't Boba Fett. Uh, Morrison had obviously played Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones, who is not a Mandalorian, but he has the Mandalorian armor, and he's really the reason Mandalorians exist, because if you didn't have Boba Fett, you wouldn't have this entire species or religious group to, to base off of his armor. Just kind of reverse-engineered through Boba Fett, which is certainly very, very, very cool. He's my dad's favorite character. My dad's always loved Boba Fett. I mean, Boba Fett didn't really get to do a heck of a lot in the original trilogy, but he was so exciting, the bounty hunter. He's no good to me, dead. That's pretty much his only line. I don't think he screams a little in Return of the Jedi. I'm very interested to see... I hope they dive into, like, what happened to him after Return of the Jedi, because if they follow the expanded universe, then Dengar, who was one of the bounty hunters that was on the bridge of the uh, Executor in, I was about to say Executor, like the Pokemon, uh, but on the Executor in Return of the Jedi, not Return of the Jedi, in Empire Strikes Back, he was the one that kind of had the bandaged head, in the Expanded Universe, he goes and rescues Boba Fett from the Starlak pit, nurses him back to health. Uh, they're friends for a little bit, and then Boba Fett kind of takes off without him. That's kind of the end of that. I don't know if they'll lean so hard into that. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. I would like if they did that. But, um... It's exciting. I... I there are a lot of, like if you read my written review, I talk a little bit just kind of, I mean, The Mandalorian as a show does not totally understand what kind of show it's supposed to be just yet in terms of the the balance between serialization and episodic storytelling. And for now, I mean, that's not really the biggest concern in the world because this show is extremely entertaining. And I think there's probably times where I sound like I'm I'm kind of peeved with the show, but but I I still I would love I I I really do enjoy it. There are kind of more I mean this show is nominated for best drama at the Emmys, which is typically something that only truly prestige dramas uh, get nominated for. I'm not I'm not saying that it shouldn't have, only that that it doesn't really play that game of sort of long-form storytelling. It's it it is oftentimes the baby Yoda show. And I would like, you know, for those kind of shows to get nominated, but there are a lot of episodes that that, that kind of do work better if you turn your noggin off and and kind of don't do critical thinking. So we'll, uh, I mean, these are things to worry about moving forward, but they're not necessarily irrelevant to bring them up now. This episode is great. It was fun. It didn't have enough Baby Yoda, but other than that, uh, a lot of fun. Great action, uh, great comedy. I would love to see Timothy Alphon again, not so much on Tatooine though, so where are we gonna see him? I don't know. we'll probably go back to Tatooine. I can't imagine they're done going to Tatooine with the first episode of the series, but uh of the season, but we'll see, we'll see. it's certainly gonna be exciting and uh, I can't wait and uh I hope this format is uh, appealing to people uh we are. We're not definitely not going to have guests for the season. We're going to play it by air. And I say that, you know, I thought about asking people to come on. I thought about asking Terror to come on. I know Star Wars really well, and I kind of, I definitely look at at, at these kinds of recaps as more of an expansion on on my written review, which uh, almost makes it easier to do solo. But if people say, okay, Ian, we don't need to hear from you exclusively. Bring on a guest. Uh, Let's see. And these episodes, we're gonna try to have them out on the Saturday after each episode airs. Uh, it may be the Sunday. It, it could be uh, Mondays, but we're we're gonna try and uh, we'll do our best. And thank you so much, everybody, for listening. So excited to have the Baby Yoda show back. So excited to be here, sharing it with you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.